Any trait you disown, the world around you runs you by. Because that's your button in life. And I said, and now, now what? let's go to a moment where this individual displays the exact opposite trait. Because if you're assuming that they're always that way and not the opposite trait, you have a delusion, a subjective biased, false attribution biased delusion on top of this person. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Mental Purpose Podcast. This may be the most powerful episode I've ever done. I'm not playing. I'm not playing around. I think we could have gone five hours. Uh, you know, the, the, this, this guest today is truly extraordinary. And I'm not minimizing the other guests that I've had. What I'm pointing out is the alignment that I had with this guest, that this guest had with our audience. And, and just the information that he brought was, it was second by second. He starts off with his story. We start talking about unconditional love. Lessons he learned from Howard Hughes and Ted Nugent while he was hitchhiking across the country at 14 years old, gaining courage through entrepreneurial training, being a slave to money, and then shifting to being its master, which is what his dad taught him. Thinking long-term, investing in yourself, buying your freedom, giving your child a place they can excel, allowing them to be themselves, the collective hero versus the individual hero, the seven different areas of life, formulating your plan and how crucial that is internal versus external motivation, brain functioning. We're going to get deep into the psychological, the brain working. We're going to talk about failure. We're going to talk a lot. At the end of this episode is all about comparison to others, which we all know can be a death sentence. This episode, I mean, it is, it is packed. And, and I think there are very there are very few episodes where I sit back and I'm just quiet and I'm just a student, not the person that's supposed to be interviewing. And so this was one of those episodes. There are very few. And this was one of those episodes that may be the most powerful that I've ever, um, I've ever experienced. It's not powerful because of me. I'm just the other guy on the microphone. It's powerful because of Dr. John Demartini today. And I am, I, I am, I'm so excited for you to hear this. So I'm going to give you John, Dr. John Demartini's bio, just in case you don't know who he is. I mean, he's a, he's a leading authority in personal development in the world. I'll give you his bio. First, if you haven't already, this is the time. You got to join the mental purpose community on Facebook. Get over there, join the mental purpose community. We've got a free gift for you. Um, and just get in there. We've got, we got coaching weekly free coaching twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. It, it's, it's such a cool community. There's over 800 members now, and we're all doing pretty extraordinary things, looking to elevate and evolve our lives just to be the best versions of us so that we can be the most authentic that we can be and we can live the most fulfilling and regret-free lives. And I'm still kind of reeling from this episode. I shoot these, in, I shoot these uh, intros right after I'm done with the recording, and I, I'm just looking at my paper, and I'm just so like inspired. I'm so inspired by this guy. And I know you both, you both, you all will be too. And so I meant to say both of us will be inspired. Um, so let me give you Dr. John D. Martini's bio. Let's get rolling here. Cause this is going to be a long episode and it is power packed. And here's what I'm going to tell you. If I can give you any advice, pay attention, don't be doing something, have a pen and paper ready or your phone's notes. You are going to take notes feverishly because this guy has distilled information so tightly that it just hits you like a ton of bricks and it just makes sense. You'll hear me say like, wow, it's so simple. Like the way he puts things is so simple. 
and he's just so succinct and, and a product of not worrying about success, just following his process. Freaking brilliant. You got, oh man, you are going to love this episode. You're going to love it. Okay. So Dr. John Martini, what an honor to have him on. Growing up, he was faced with a lot of physical and learning challenges. He spent much of his childhood being told by his teachers and even his parents that he would never amount to anything. I went through that. And I'm guessing that one of you or many of you listening, you had some teacher tell you that. And you either let it motivate you like he did and I did, or you let it get you down. And either way, you're here. So now we get to shift. He was constrained to arm and leg braces until he was four years old and he lived out his teenage years on the streets. Literally, at 14 years old, he left home and he hitchhiked to California and then to Hawaii and Mexico. Uh, he nearly died weeks before his 18th birthday and that experience shifted him into a completely different course. Um, if you want to get more info on him, just Google Dr. John D. Martini or go to drdmartini.com and you can find all you want about him. There's free stuff on his website that you can take advantage of. Please do. All right, let me finish here. At 18, he learned to read. He wrote his first book at 18. And now in his 60s, he's read over 30,510 books and dedicated his life's work to sharing his knowledge and teaching others to overcome. You're going to get all the details of his story filled in by him on this episode. And he's going to put a lot of context on it too. A little bit, like probably in the middle of the episode, he's going to put context on his story based on like his parents and, and society. And it's really cool how he, he spins it back around. So um, from someone that couldn't read and write, Dr. Martini has gone on to share the stage with leading authorities like Deepak Chopra and Richard Branson and is the world's leading expert on personal development, in my opinion, and on human behavior. And he's shared his wisdom on Larry King, CNN, CNBC, Oprah, just to name a few. Without further ado, you have got to hear this. It is such a powerful episode. Please give us your feedback. Let us know what you thought. Get onto the Mental Purpose community and drop in there what you learned from this episode so we can all share it out. And it maybe, maybe we can get the most downloads we've ever had, right? So thank you for being here. Thanks for supporting us. Thanks for, for supporting yourself and, and seeking a higher level. And enjoy this episode. All right, Dr. Martini, it's an honor, a privilege. I'm so excited for this interview because one, I'm a huge fan, selfishly, I'm excited. And two, our audience is gonna, they're gonna benefit so much from your stories, your professional information. I mean, just everything about you, I think they're gonna be just elated with. So welcome to the Mental Purpose Podcast. Thank you for having me. I was looking forward to it. Thank you. Absolutely. So let's just, I want to start and we, and I kind of said this before we started recording your childhood was, was, uh, not anything by normal standards. And yet the guy that's sitting in front of me today and the audience is listening to is a result of you doing work on you. And I want you to just take the audience through some of the, the keynotes of your childhood so they can really understand that you're, you're not just a guy who got lucky. You're a guy that actually was intentional and purposeful with who you wanted to become. And I think that's really important to point out. 
Okay, you want to one minute, five minute? How 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 much time do you <laughs> let's want go, to do this? Let's do the let's do the five to ten minute. Okay. I was born in 1954 in Houston, Texas. For some reason, my positioning in the womb was awkward, I guess, and I had an arm and leg turned inward. And so when I, I didn't really comprehend that until I started to try to stand and then I would fall over. So I had to wear braces on my arm and leg as a child to straighten them out. So I was a Forrest Gump clunky, you know, arm to fingers to above the knees to the leg clunker things. Yeah. I also had a speech impediment and I had to wear use strings and buttons in my mouth to exercise my mouth because I couldn't speak. I wasn't making sounds properly. Yeah. I did that until I was four. I got out of my braces at four. From that point on, I just wanted to keep my arm and leg straight because I didn't want to go back in the braces. And I wanted to prove to my dad that I could do that. And I started running. I became a sure. runner. Because <laughs> nice. when you've been constrained, you want to be free. Yeah. I really believe that all the things that go on in people's lives is actually on the way, not in the way, but at first you may not see it. Yeah. By the time I got to elementary school, kindergarten class, I had this very elderly lady and I wanted to draw with the girls, not with the boys. And the teacher said, no, you're a boy. You draw with the boys. You draw army and war and cars and things like a boy. You don't draw trees and landscape. And so every time I'd sneak back over the girls, I, I guess an Italian, I like the chicks. I, I right. got, she used to put me in the middle of the room and said, you're not a, if you're not going to play with the boys, you're not going to play with the girls. I'm going to put you in the middle by yourself. Interesting. So I was destined to be on the middle path. Right. <laughs> a mixture of the androgyny. When I got to first grade, my first grade teacher tried to teach me reading and it just wasn't working. I found out I had dyslexia and the speech impediment was causing all kinds of problems. And I couldn't read. And I got went from the normal reading to remedial reading to the dunce class. I had to wear a dunce cap when I was, you know, six, oh, that's seven a real, was that was a real thing? Yeah, real thing. We wow. used to, I, me and Daryl Dalrymple used to have to face the window and look outside until we decided we were going to read. But none of that was ever going to happen. So finally, she had my parents come to the school and said, I'm afraid your son is not going to be able to read, not going to be able to write properly because I wrote backwards and not going to be able to spell, not going to be able to communicate effectively, probably not go very far in life, not probably going to amount to much. And that's, it wasn't because she was mean. It just, it just, that's what they didn't know what to do it was the resources were less than. And she said, but he likes to run. Right. <laughs> he goes out and just runs by himself. And, um, so put him in sports. So I did some sports, two sports, baseball and surfing. Because at nine, I picked up surfing later. But Texas wasn't the surf capital. And I right. did really well in baseball until I was 12. And I made it through elementary school by asking the smartest kid questions. They would tell me enough to where I could somehow get by. Hmm. But reading wasn't working and speaking was awkward. And, but I used to ask the smartest kids class information that worked until i was 12 my parents moved from houston texas to richmond texas then and we lived in a very low socioeconomic area in the country and we went to a school that wasn't really any smart you know academically 
Sure. And I end up not having anybody to ask questions to. I end up failing and I end up dropping out. So I left home when I was 13 and uh, became a street kid. I lived in the back of a bowling alley. I lived in a park. I lived in cars. I lived in a diner. I did odd things, you know, little jobs here and there. And I became a street kid. Let me ask and, you a quick question on that. Well, how do you, I think of myself as at 13 years old and I, I couldn't survive on my own at all. What, what possessed you to, to leave and, and two, were your parents against it, supportive of it? I mean, how did, how did you know how to survive? <laughs> this is a funny story. <laughs> I was, my dad, we lived in the country and we had a barn, it had a little pool table in it. And we were playing pool one day. And um, I had a buddy in town that his parents were going out of town. And so we invited two girls over to his place and we were going to, you know, make out <laughs> those days. You're going to kiss for like hours, you know? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, that was the thing. Whoever could kiss the longest was the coolest, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I, I think that was the, the deal. But anyway, uh, I was not going to pass it up. And I told my dad, I need to go. I'm going into town. He said, no, you need to stay home tonight. Uh, you've been out in, in, you know, and in, in order to go to town, it was 13 miles. So we had to walk oh, or hitchhike, well. yeah. you know, or ride a tractor. <laughs> so I, uh, or bicycle or something, but, um, but I was not going to pass up this opportunity. I mean, you know, I didn't want to tell my dad, I got this chick at this, at no parents house. You know, I didn't want to tell him that because that wouldn't have gone over too well, but I, I was not going to pass up this opportunity because she was the hottest chick and she was, she was right. Hot. So I told him, I said, when I'm going to the town, he said, no, you're staying home. No, I'm going to town. We stay home. He said, if you go out tonight, you don't come back. Hmm. Now he's just doing what a dad did. He wasn't kicking me out of the sure. house, really. He was just doing what a dad did. But I took his bluff. I mean, I, I said, well, I guess I'm, I'll pack up. So I packed up because I was not going to pass up this opportunity. Well, <laughs> so I packed my bags. And my mom said, are you sure you want to tell him he can't come back? And he said, no, he's, if he's deciding he's a man today, he's going to be the man today. You know, he was very wow. firm about it. And he trained me on how to be kind of an entrepreneur because he knew I wasn't going to be able to read and write, communicate effectively. So he knew I had problems. So he trained me on how to be street smart. Got it. Okay. So, so when I hit the streets, I stayed at some friends' houses. And then I found this all-night bowling alley. There's a place to crash in the back. And I tried to go to school, but it had dropped out eventually. I just said, that's not working. And I became a street kid. And I knew how to survive. I mean, I became, you know, I did little jobs here and there. I did this. I panhandled. I did, uh, you know, I, I figured out how to get by. I found food at the back of a Kroger market, and you could get food at the end. They'd throw it out and grab food. I mean, I, I figured things out, you know? Yeah. And so... At 14, I decided I'm going off to California to surf. Baseball was not the same. It wasn't, it wasn't working for me there. So I hitchhiked to California at 14 and down into Mexico at 14. And that was an adventure. I mean, I loved it. I, 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 I met amazing people on the way. I, I met uh, Ted Nugent the first night hitchhiking. I, I ended up having a party with Ted Nugent at the Armadillo Club. The, the, the two days old. later, I was, I was 14. There was a party in, in the back after he did his performance at the Armadillo Club. So I hung out there and I met this chick and I stayed there. And then I later that night, I hitchhiked off towards, towards California. 
A couple of days later, I'm in El Paso, Texas, and I meet Howard Hughes on the street. Wow. He's doing an El Paso natural gas deal. And I meet this guy in the street. It turned out to be a guy that wanted to teach me something. He took me to a library and told me, learn how to read, boy. There's only two things they can ever take away from your life. And that's your love and wisdom. Gain the wisdom of love and the love of wisdom. Learn how to read. I mean, I, hmm. that was an amazing thing. And then yeah. when I met Timothy Leary, the guy that was involved in LSD research and stuff. Yeah. Uh, this is all in one hitchhike. I was just at the right place to meet these crazy uh, synchronous events. I made it to California. I stayed in Huntington Beach. I, I met this 27-year-old chick. You're not supposed to say that, but I hung out with this 27-year-old chick. It was pretty good. I mean, 27 was good then. 27 is probably good now. I don't know. But anyway, uh, you know, but all I know is that I had, you know, an adventure. Then I decided I'm going surfing in Mexico because I heard the surf was there, good there. So I ended up hitchhiking there. I snuck across the border without paperwork, hitchhiked in. You know, there was no Trump wall at the time. So right, right. I went down an adventure. I hitchhiked down there and on an adventure. It was an amazing adventure. I came back. And then at 15, I made it to Hawaii. Uh, I remember when I landed in Hawaii, it's like, whoa, this is amazing. And I, I went out and got to, to, I went out and stayed on the North Shore. I slept under the Kamehameha Highway Bridge at Sunset Beach. And it was too noisy there. So I moved to Iakai Beach Park and stepped, stay, slept under a, a little park bench there, which is still there today. So I took my daughter there two years ago and showed her the place. Then I went to the bathroom. If it rained, I found an abandoned car that I just, it was open. So I just slipped at night in there and shut the door and left. And then I, I found this grass house tent combination. So I kept social climbing and I became a surfer, a long haired hippie surfer guy that uh, rode big waves. We saw surfed 40 foot waves, which was big then. Now it's a hundred, but in our days yeah. it was 40 foot. And I got into tier B of the surfing. I didn't get in the top 12, but I was in the next. I got in some, surf movies and surf book and magazines occasionally. I wasn't a superstar, but I was good at it. And then I died almost, got really close, almost died. I was literally unconscious for three and a half days uh, from a, a, a situation surfing and also some, some uh, poisoning that I had. And that led me to a health food store because a lady found me in my tent, took me to a health food store to kind of get me recovered. And that led me to a, a yoga class where Paul C. Bragg was speaking. And one night, one hour, this one man with one message spoke to me in a way that nobody in my life ever shared. And he said, you know, you have a mind, body, and spirit. And uh, when the mind is guided by the, the body is guided by the mind and the mind is directed by the spirit, you, you tend to master your life. And he said, you want to set goals for yourself, your family, your community, your city, your state, your nation, your world, and beyond for 100 to 120 years. And what you think about what you visualize, what you affirm, what you feel, what you take actions on will become your destiny. Nobody ever talked to me like this. This is not the, yeah. the typical thing I was yeah. used to hearing. And even though I was good in surfing and I was, you know, I had that type of intelligence, body intelligence, not academic intelligence. That was the night that he took us through this meditation experience. And I saw this vision of me standing on a balcony speaking in front of a million people. And I was going, whoa, where'd that come from? And I was brought to tears. And it was really an epiphany. I haven't painted it. It sits in my office today, that painting. And that night I thought, I saw a vision of me speaking and I was intelligent. And I thought, wow, wasn't expecting that. Probably some sort of dissociative identity disorder at the time. <laughs> it was <laughs> a delusion of some form. But 
But that was so inspiring to me, that epiphany, that I, that was the first night in my entire life I thought someday I could become intelligent. Just maybe I could overcome my learning problems and read and, and, and speak properly. I used to have to have the surfers around me read stuff. The only thing I could read is surf magazine and chick magazines because they were visual pictures. Right, right. And uh, so I, I, that was the, the day my life began changed. I, I, I decided that I was going to figure out a way of learning how to read. And I remember going and buying my first book, Chico's Organic Gardening and Natural Living with a long haired hippie guy on the front cover that looked like me. And I thought if that dude could write it, I bet I could read it. <laughs> and I, I scanned the book and I didn't read most of it, but I saw the pictures and I thought, okay, that's the first time I ever went through a cover to cover on a book because I was intimidated by books. And then I decided I'm going back, I'm going to go back to California and hitchhike back to Texas and see my parents. The surf was coming down in the spring. And so I thought, this is the time I'm going to go see my parents. We never had any, really any different. I love my parents. They love me. It was, I've never had any of that. But they just thought if he's independent, let him go. He, he'll find his path. And um, I came back and I remember my mom was cooking prunes in, in the kitchen. When I walked in home, I had long hair and a beard. She goes like, what? And who, who, what is this? She didn't recognize me. You hadn't, you hadn't seen them I, in that time. Yeah, I haven't seen them in a number of years. And my father drove by and my sister drove by. They didn't even recognize me. They thought I was some guy right. on the street, you know. Had, had you so I come in and my... 14 and 18? Uh, every six months, maybe. I'd, okay. I'd, I'd do a collect call and tell them yeah. where I'm at now and that kind of thing. I'm alive. There's always a collect call. Right. But because uh, <laughs> otherwise, you got to put quarters in all the time. And uh, my mom just said, Oh my God, welcome home. And she encouraged me to take a GED, a high school equivalency test. And so I went to the University of Houston and sat in this room and took this test like, you know, this day test. And I closed my eyes. I, if I could read any of the words, it made sense. I didn't try to answer it. If I didn't, I closed my eyes. And I would just say the thing that Paul Bragg said to me, because I told him I didn't know how to read. And I, and he said, you know, I told him I wanted to be a teacher. And he says, well, say to yourself every single day, I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. So I started saying this. And so I just said that affirmation, I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. And I, I just filled in a, a, a black, you know, pencil mark. And I friggin' passed. <laughs> That's awesome. I had to be a high school degree, you know, and it was about a month before everybody else in my age group would have graduated. So I was the head of the class all of a sudden, right. By taking this test, yeah, I, really I went on a hippie, a hippie surfing journey, you know? So I'm like enamored. I'm like, my parents are like, wow, now you can get a job. Cause if you don't have a high school equivalence, you can't get a job. Sure. You know, it's just not, you, you're, you're going to be in minimal wage kind of thing. So I'm like thinking that's pretty cool. But there, there's a part of me that's thinking, I want to move further. So my parents said, well, the surf is down. Why don't you try to take a college class? Okay. What do I do? The same thing. So I went and tried to go to college and I thought the same thing was going to happen. I was going to miraculously pass. But when I got my first test score, I got a 27, not a 72. I had to have 72 to pass. I got a 27. So my dyslexia got the numbers backwards. That was a joke. But anyway, when I got that, I was so devastated by it. I just ran to my car and cried. I sunk in the car. I didn't want anybody to see me. Because I was, yeah, I like to do is hear my first grade teacher. He'll never read, write, or communicate, never mount a thing, never go very far in life. And I remember driving home crying 
and I would all of a sudden my vision of being a you know reading and teaching and stuff was just shattered. And I thought, I guess I'm going to go back and surf. I can do that. And I came home and I curled up in the fetal position underneath this Bible that my mom had in the living room and um, just curled up there and just cried, really sulking. And my mom came home from shopping. She saw me there. She says, well, what happened? So what's wrong? She hadn't seen me cry in years. I said, mom, I blew the test. I, I needed a 72 to pass. I got a 27. I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess I'll never read, write, communicate. I, read, I, I said with the first grade teacher because she was there with the first grade teacher. Yeah. And it just paused for a second. Time stopped. And my mom looked at me and then said something only a mom could say. She put her hand on my shoulder and she said, son, whether you become a great teacher and travel the world like you say you want to do your dream, whether you return to Hawaii and ride giant waves like you've done, or you return to the streets and panhandle is a bum. I just want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what you do, boy. Hmm. Wow. It's pretty and she said that. Yeah. I mean, it was like a moment of presence, a moment of certainty, a moment of grace, a moment of love. It was a timeless moment that she gave me that. And I remember when she said that too. It was unconditional. And my hand went into a fist of determination. Yeah. And I said to myself, not to her, but just to myself, I'm going to mask this thing called reading and studying and learning. I'm going to mask this thing called teaching. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to get my service of love across this planet. I'm not going to let any human being on the face of this earth stop me now, not even myself. And I, I was so, there was a point of absolutely no turning back, no option now. I got up and I hugged my mom. And I went into my room. I got a Funkin' Wagnalls dictionary. If you bought $20 worth of food, you get a dictionary or a, a volume of an encyclopedia <laughs> in those days. And I got this Funkin' Wagnalls dictionary, which is still in my office today, covered in tape. And I decided I was going to memorize the friggin' dictionary 30 words a day until my vocabulary was strong enough to pass school and excel. Wow. So 30 words a day, my mom would teach me, test, test me on. And I could not go to bed until I had those 30 words spelled, pronounced, put in a sentence, meaning, et cetera. And when you're dyslexic, that's not an easy job. But we worked on that. And 30 words a day at the end of a year, you can count that up. After 10 days, you got 300 words. Yeah. After 100 days, you have 3,000 words. At the end of a year... You have more than 10,000 words. In two years, you have 20-something thousand words. So my vocabulary was growing. And I started reading encyclopedias and dictionaries and trying to learn in words all day long if I was at school. And I started just reading in dictionaries and encyclopedias. I read eight complete sets of encyclopedias, all the volumes, just wow. to feed my mind on new words. As the next months goes on, my mom came to me. Now I'm excelling in school. I literally went from not passing to then starting to 
pass to eventually excel. It literally went skyrocketing because of my vocabulary and my reading 18, 20 hours a day. And my mom said to my, for my 19th birthday, what do you want for your birthday? I said, I want the greatest teachings on the face of the earth, the greatest writings that by the greatest minds who ever lived through the centuries. And she said, are you sure you don't want a t-shirt? I was thinking more like a t-shirt, son. I said, no, I want the greatest ideas by the greatest minds who ever lived. Okay, let me see what I can do. Well, she happened to have a brother who's a professor at MIT and worked for Shell Oil Company as an engineer and physicist and mathematician. And how he got it, I don't know if it was his own library, I don't know what, but all I know is that two, a flatbed truck came to our house with two giant six by six by six foot wooden crates and were delivered to the house with thousands of books. And I got a crowbar and opened up the crates and just carried 15 books at a time and carried them in my room and just stacked them in my room. And I had these thousands of books. I had a virtual library now. And I just started to devour and organize the books and summarize and read and, and learn and just devour. And all of a sudden I'm having students now come to me and ask me if they can ask me questions. Can I teach them this? Can I teach them that? And my teaching career started at age 18. And by 19, I was teaching every day in the library. People used to gather in the library. When I went on to the University of Houston, I did it out under the trees. Unless it was raining, and went into the cafeteria. I have 100, 125, 150, up to 400 people would gather every day under the trees and ask questions, and I'd do a presentation. When I went on to professional school, I started doing classes seven nights a week, and I got to place out of some of the classes and teach some of the classes I was supposed to take for my degrees in advanced studies. And I started teaching around the community and the city. And by the time I was 27, I was now teaching uh, locally in the city. I had a TV show and radio show. And by the time I was 28, I started speaking around the nation. By 29, I started speaking in different countries. I, it just started growing. And now by the end of the year, it'll be 170 countries I've gotten to speak in. And my dream was to step foot on every country on the face of the earth and share my research findings with people. That was my dream when I was met Paul Brack. So I'm yeah. still working on it. Still working. Pretty close now. Pretty close. Yeah, we're getting we're getting closer. Some countries aren't easy to speak in, <laughs> but we're yeah. working on it. And you, and but when and now with internet, with internet, I have students in every country. Right. That's been confirmed. Every country we have students now. So I've reached that goal on internet, but not physically. Now, originally it was physical, but we didn't have internet yeah. in those days. Yeah. So I, I, I'm just so grateful that the teacher said I would never read. I've read now 30,602 books. I've never write. I'm, I'm sitting about 300 books that I've written. Uh, if I, they said I never communicate, reached with, with media and everything, 6 billion people. They said I would never mount a thing. I, I live on the biggest yacht on the planet. I'm sailing in the French Polynesian islands right now. Uh, they said I've never uh, go very far in life. I've traveled 20 million miles on flights and God knows how many miles from sailing. So everything that the teacher said, I wouldn't do end up being the thing I got to do. So I'm so grateful for that teacher. I'd love to give her a hug because that void became my value. You know, what's interesting is there are so many kids that a teacher says that to that don't turn out like you and that it's massively detrimental to that kid's development because they don't have that support at home. 
So the question that I have, I mean, I have so many questions just based on that, that story is what was, what was going on at home that actually set you up one to have the courage to not only leave home and, you know, not go out for a couple hours ago. Yeah, this is, this is a little scary. I'm going back. Can't, can't eat, can't figure out how to get food. I don't feel safe. Where did you find that courage? And then not only that, uh, to, to, to live out there on your own, to hitchhike to Mexico, to party with Ted Nugent, to go to Hawaii, um, to live on a beach, which, which, you know, is very, it sounds very divine that this lady found you in this tent. How did you gain that courage? I didn't think of it as courageous, really. I, I, it wasn't, it wasn't my perception. Um, when I was nine years old, um, my dad already knew I had learning problems that was evident in school. And I was, so he tried to compensate for that by giving me entrepreneurial training and to, he, he was, he came from the belief that there was the formative years up to age seven. And he says, and whatever I've taught him by age seven, that's his basic foundation. That was what they were taught in those days. So he tried to make me a little entrepreneur, a little street smart kid. So when I was nine years old, I said, dad, I want to buy a baseball and a glove and a bat. How do I do it? And he said, well, if you mowed the yard, I had a lot of accountabilities at home. And I said, yeah. Did you edge the sidewalk? Yeah. Did you uh, trim the hedges? Yeah. Did you pull the weeds? Yeah. Did you clean out the garage? Yeah. Did you sign my shoes? Yep. And he just went down this list and I'd done them all. And he said, if you want to earn money, if I, I can't just give you money without you doing something. That's not how the world works. So if you want to make money, you're going to have to go to the neighbors. Hmm. So I walked down the street and I looked for people that had yards that needed help. And I knocked on the door and asked, you know, do you want your weeding or the hedge just done or mowed or anything like that? And I found this lady, Mrs. Evans, and she said, yeah, the whole yard was ready. And uh, I, I got blisters and bee stings and sunburn and I went to work and I knocked out that yard that day and I made it look like amazing. My dad trained me on all those different skills. Sure. And um, I came home and I bought that bicycle on that, that the, the ball and bat and glove. And uh, it was interesting. I came home and he said, well, I see you got a glove and a bat and a ball. What did you do? And I said, I did what you told me. I went to the neighbors and I did. He, he said, what did, what'd you do? I said, I mowed and Ed, he said, what equipment did you use? I said, well, the one in the garage, he said, son, you don't get to use the equipment without negotiating a deal. And you got to pay for the rental of this equipment. Oh, so let me think about what you owe me now. The depreciation line. He said, you owe me $7 and 50 cents. And I went, oh, I've spent all the money. He said, well, then it teaches you, you got you to gotta do it. You owe me the money. You got to pay me. You got a week to get that paid up. So you're going to have to go out and do some more yards and get me paid back up. Because hmm. he's trying to train me in the real world. That was the real world out there. I said, okay. So I started doing more yards. And I noticed the big corner yards, I could charge $9. And the little yards, I do $5. And, and, I, and I looked at how much it was and the rental and everything else. And so... I paid him off, but my margin was smaller. And so I think this is a lot of work now. I'm sweating and getting burnt for less return on my investment, you know, my time. Right. And then this kid came by and watched me mow one day. He was a little bicycle. He's going along. And I said, how would you like to make 50 cents? He said, sure. 50 cents was significant when you're a little nine-year-old. And um, you buy a whole lunch for, for 26 cents, you know. 
So, so I said, would you like to make 50 cents? He said, yeah. He says, all you got to do is follow this, this mowing machine and, you know, around the yard and just mow the yard. He goes, I think I can do that. And I showed him how to do it. And then I got another kid to do the edging and another kid to do sweeping and raking. And I got three kids to do the yards. So I went and closed another deal while they did the yard and I closed another deal. And then I hired three more kids and three more kids. And I got nine kids doing three yards at a time. And I got the Malas and the Zubrods equipment and rented it out at the same price my dad and paid them. And I netted, I netted about $3 a yard on, on average. And we knocked out a bunch of yards. I mean, we, we, I ended up with $45 at the end of the day after everything's paid, which wow. is that's about $600 today. With say, that's a lot of money in the early 60s. that's 600 bucks a day. If your kid was making 600 bucks a day, you'd let him stay at the house probably. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So my dad, my dad said, you know, you've bought now your, your bicycle. You've now bought your, your golf set. You've bought, you know, but one thing you're not doing is you're not saving your money. If you don't Mm -hmm. save your money, you're going to work your whole life for money. If you save your money, it's going to work its life for you. You got to not be a, 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 a slave to money. You need to be its master. So he bought me a coin collection set, these little blue folding things. And those days, coins were significant. And then he bought me a piggy bank. He says, when the piggy banks gets filled, we can go to the bank and we can deposit in the bank. So I started filling these things up and doing coin collections and piggy bank. And I still have in my office in Houston, Texas, on the 52nd floor there, which I'm rarely at, but been there for 36 years. The same piggy bank with the same coins from 1963 in that bag, oh. that piggy bank, because I was never given a key to open it. I have, to, I have to hit it with a sledgehammer to open it. My dad gave me a bank without a way of opening it. So the original coins from 1963 still exist in there. And I've kept so it there cool. as a metaphor. It sits there as a metaphor to think long term and to make sure yeah. you invest in yourself. And so my dad, then he said, okay, now you're learning how to save. Now you're making your money. Now you're doing things. I says, I want to teach you one last thing. I want to show you what freedom is. I said, what's that? Now, every time he talks to me, I'm, I'm usually having to pay more, you know? So I was like, it's like the tax authorities. <laughs> and, I, and so I said, what is this, dad? What is this next one? He said, son, I want you to know what it's like to buy your freedom. From now on, you're going to pay $7.50 a week for clothing, food, and rent. But now you'll be able to go anywhere you want on that bicycle, anytime you want. All I ask you to do is be home at nine o'clock at night. That is it. <laughs> you can leave as early as four in the morning, but you have to be home at nine o'clock at night. What you do with the day is your business. You want to work. You want to go ride your bicycle. You want to go play. You want to play ball. All I ask you to be home by nine o'clock. And if you want food and clothes and rent, you got to pay for it here. He's preparing me for the real world. Yeah, that so, makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So he knew when I left that he knew he'll be he'll be fine. I think he believed in yeah. me. Yeah. He believed in me. Now, did I have some rough edges? Sure. Did I almost get killed a few times? Yes. Did I, you know, come close to brush to death? Yes. Did I hang out with some wild characters? Yes. <laughs> but I'm grateful. I, I I look back now. I don't sure. have anything I'd regret. Nothing I need to hide. Nothing I wouldn't tell anybody. I, it's it's like, what an adventure. And uh, so yeah. But I used to ride my bicycle 35 miles in different directions to just to explore different roads and to see the city. And then I started going out to different cities. And then I started hopping trains when I was 12 to different cities. And I started hitchhiking to different cities at 13. 
and then it's, it's, it leave early in the morning and get on a train and ride halfway in the morning and whenever the halfway point jump back off and then ride back on the next train and just to see i wanted i wanted to be free i didn't want to be constrained because those braces i think so by the time i was 14 hitchhiking to california wasn't much at all and my mom who i did talk to occasionally actually knew when i was going to go to california she actually got a notary to sign a piece of paper i've got a copy of it still a notary saying my son's not a runaway he's a boy has no relatives in California, but he's a man with a dream. He's going to go and surf. I wrote it up That's on cool. a notarized piece of paper and said, go, go live your dream. My dad dreamed about going to California when he came out of the service and dreamed to go to California and started on a journey on a bus from New York to California, got stuck in Texas, needed a job, got a job at an engineering company, met my mom, got transferred to Houston and never made it to California. Never in his life. Yeah. Never in his life did he ever go to California. So when I told him I'm going to California, go. Yeah. Go live so I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you about uh, any resentment that you had toward them. And now with this yeah. context, there is only yeah. gratitude. Like your parents were Absolutely. so instrumental in who you are today. And it's interesting because- Very much. I've read so many different bios and so many different things about you, yet none of them explain the context that you just explained. And then, and yeah. the emotional, the emotional feeling that I felt, and I know the audience is going to feel when you were in that fetal position and your mom just, shit, you're going to make me cry again. Like when your mom just loved on you and was unconditional with you and just believed in you. I mean, how the hell can that not propel anybody forward? You know, that's so well, beautiful. I, I uh, you know, I have a sister that has a, a slightly different version about the parents. You know, her version of them is different. I go, okay, well, that's that's how it normally is, you know, pair, pair of opposites in family. But I, I look back and I thought, amazing parents. My dad was engineering and, and studied Schopenhauer and studied uh, Spinoza and was a philosophy kind of guy. And my mom was a kind of a mystic and artist. And they were a nice balance of right and left brain kind of stuff. And, uh, and I'm, I, I have nothing there except gratitude for them. They, they were perfect for what, for what I think my journey and they gave me the freedom. They didn't try to, you know, stop me. They just said, go, we yeah. believe you can do it. Cause they knew I wasn't going to make it in school. So I might as well go after what I dreamed about. They wanted me to live with my dream. And my dream was riding big waves and they knew I was good on the surfboard naturally. Somehow I did nine years old. The very first time I ever got on a surfboard, I got up and I rode. And they go, whoa, where'd you get that? And I just knew how to ride a wave. And uh, so they said, look, he's going to excel at something. Give a child some place they can excel and that will help their confidence. And so I, I uh, was blessed by that. I mean, that in itself, give a, say that again, give a child a place they can excel. Yeah. Find out what is inspiring to them intrinsically and allow them to be themselves so they end up trusting their own knowing. And that, ex that helps them wake up their, their own path of leadership. Yeah, that's so clear. It's so simply clear. You know, how did you wind up getting into, um, into the personal development space where you're helping humans grow? And I, and I want to I preface this by a, a quote that I like from you. It says, every individual lives by a set of priorities and values, things that are most important to least important, but people are not identifying what's most important to them. 
and having that and have values based on societal pressures and set goals toward that. That's so true in our society. Yeah, we're, we're so worried about fitting in and we're fearing rejection from the herd that we don't get hurt. And uh, the individual, the path of the individual hero is different than the path of the collective hero. The collective hero is the person that's honored by the society because he fits in. <clears throat> the individual here is the one that challenges societies and changes the, the paradigm. And I guess I've been a misfit all my life, as Steve Jobs would say, you know, left-handed dyslexic misfit that couldn't do things. So I'm, I'm perfect for being the oddball. But I, um, you know, I, I, what started me on the personal development journey was when I met Paul Bragg. I mean, I started uh, reading, uh, you know, that little book on organic gardening. And then I, then I got back home and I, once I started to learn how to read, my parents, you know, bought me Science of Mind by Ernest Holmes, um, The Phenomenon of Man, you know, by uh, Chardin. Um, they started getting me kind of self-help and philosophical books. Jonathan Livingston Stiegel, the, the Buddha. I mean, it started getting me stuff. And I started to go to the library and I started to go in bookstores and, you know, they had into mom and pop bookstores in those days. And I, I started doing it. I'd get encyclopedias and I just started reading. And I, I had a dream at age 18 because I watched a show called Kung Fu with David Carradine. I don't know if you remember, you may have, you'd have to go back and watch it. Maybe. I know, I know it's that. 1973. I know that. So 1973, David Carradine played this Kung Fu guy who had this master, you know, Shaolin temple kind of guy. And he was always teaching great principles and demonstrating nonviolent uh, defense. And it was a great show. And I thought, I heard the word master. And I thought, I want to master my life. So at 18, I wrote in my goal book, I want to master my life. And I said, what exactly does that mean? And then I divided life into seven areas, our spiritual quest, our intellectual quest, our business quest, our financial quest, family quest, relationship, social leadership quest, and physical well-being quest. And I said, I want to master all those areas. So I wrote down what that meant. And I, I wrote down that I wanted to create original ideas that serve humanity and create ingenious ideas that contributed to solving problems in the world. I want to create a global business. I want to have financial independence. I want to have a global family. Because I remember reading by then Einstein and Da Vinci's work. And he says, I'm not a man of my family or my community or my city or my state or my nation. I'm a citizen of the world. And I said, I want to be a citizen of the world. My ship is called the world. It goes all over the world. So I, that's that's meaningful. It's, that was selected. And then um, I want to have social influence. I want to meet the most amazing people that are making the biggest difference in the world. I want to hang out with them. And uh, then I want to be physically vital. I'm going on 68 and I'm, I'm still in intensely active. And then I, um, I want to also create some sort of movement that was inspiring, that wasn't religious. I didn't want to follow uh, a religious dogma. I wanted to inspire people. So no matter anybody from any religious faith could be involved, but it'd be inspiring. I want to be inspiring to people and to help them live an inspired life. So I wrote all that out at 18 and started master planning that. And every time I would read something that would add to that, I'd refine that plan. That plan is thousands of pages now. And I refine it every single day. I still work on that plan. It's never been not worked on. And I just write out how I want my life and keep metrics of how, how I'm making progress in it. And I'm looking at how do I refine it, make it more efficient tomorrow. And I just keep working on that thing because I, 
I had a dream to be able to help other people master their lives and do something extraordinary with their life and do something meaningful and live intrinsically driven instead of having to be motivated. I don't want to be, I don't need motivation. I don't want to motivate people. I want people to access what inspires them that they're intrinsically driven to do something amazing. So that's what You're I've been working on. External, external, yeah, motivation, external motivation means nothing yeah. to me. Yeah, I don't need that. I don't need motivation. I Anything I need external motivation to do, I delegate. That's my law. Right. So if I need to be told or motivated or incentivized or rewarded to do something, I delegate that and find somebody who doesn't need to be motivated to do it, to do it. So they're intrinsically driven. And every time I give job opportunities to other people that are intrinsically driven, I get to be free to do what I'm intrinsically driven to do, which is teach, research, and write. So all I do is teach, research, write, and travel the world. Well, I haven't driven a car in 32 on... years. I, I oh, haven't really? driven a car in 32 years. I haven't, I haven't uh, cooked since I was 24. I have a Michelin-rated cook. I got a concierge. I got pilot. I got driver. I got all that. I, everything that I need done is delegated to specialists who love doing it. So I can do what I love doing, which is teach, research, and write. That's it. Delegate to specialists who love doing it. It sounds so simple. And it's so, it is. It's, it's so intrinsic in your life to, to keep, keep you in your area of genius. Yes. It's, I mean, it's so simple. It, it really is doing it, applying it, to the average person, which you're not, not an average person. You just decided not to, to follow average laws, rules, you know, that kind of thing. It's just, it, I, I love, I love to hear that. Are you on, are you in the residency? I'm, I'm, I'm on the ship right now, right outside the window is a, a Polynesian Island where, where they're doing uh, hiking and mountain climbing and snorkeling and diving right now. I just happen to be doing so, a podcast at this moment. That's what I love doing. <laughs> on my on my on my goal sheet is to is to be on that ship. I've never well, met I've never met anybody I, who has a place on that ship until now. Well, I've been here twenty years, so I oh, bought really? in two thousand one when a nine eleven occurred. I bought bought here, so I, yeah. I moved on the second it opened. I was on the very inaugural launch. I was on, but a lot of times while I was I was traveling, I was off flying places because I can't always be sure, sure. live seminars where the ship is. But I've been here for twenty years. That's so cool. And you're in the same spot inside the ship for 20 years, or do you get to? I had the same uh, condo. This is a little area where I do my work, but uh, same condominium right here on the ship. Been there Love 20 it. years. Love and it. and uh, it's That's the most so cool. amazing people. The, the, the ship has got, there's a hundred of us that own the ship and they're the right. most amazing people on the planet. Most amazing contributing people. I mean, genius people on here that do massive things. Um, yeah. Some of the wealthiest people in the world. I mean, it's amazing people here. That's all I can say. And so we float around the world and we do extraordinary adventures. Right now we're filming for a discovery channel on an expedition in the Polynesians. So we do two uh, documentary expedition films usually a year. That's so neat. I, I now I know, because even I said to my wife uh, on, on the, on the, on New Year's Eve, um, just remember, I, I want to be in the world that's the goal be max time with family out in the world as a playground in a classroom and i want to get on that boat and she's like you don't know anybody that's been on that boat well 60 days later i now know somebody that has a place on that boat i'm getting closer yeah this is, this is fantastic well, i've been i've been here 
And, 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 and if you want to get on the ship, that's doable. That's not hard to do. It's just a matter of organizing. In fact, they just opened it up today where now, because of COVID, they were not allowing a lot of people on only residents or residents yeah. partners or residents kids. And they've just opened up today. They're starting to open up because it's starting to lack some of the rules. And now we're allowing other people to come back on the ship. And um, yeah, so it's totally doable. It's just a matter of finding out what port, where, where, you're in, where, where did you say you are? Los Angeles. Los LA. Yeah, I don't know when it's going to be in LA again. We were in San Diego right at New Year's. And uh, then we went off to Hawaii from there. And we've been out in the Pacific since New Year's. But um, yeah, whenever it's somebody close or if you're traveling where it's near, near its being, it just let me know. We'll figure out a way of doing it now that it's open. I am 100% going to take you up on that. 100%. Yeah. That's, that gets me no even problem. closer. So for, for, for the time we have left, I, I mean, there, there's 50 million questions I can ask you. There's, there's, we could talk for five hours. I, I, I want to talk about failures because it, it doesn't seem like to the average person out there, right? The average person listening who is in their way, who's having challenges believing in themselves or believing something is possible for them in the world, who have setbacks that they say that was a failure and it does kick them back. It seems like every time you got hit with what you would call a failure, it actually propelled you forward. Is there anything in your life that has, that has beat you down? And how did you get out of that? I mean, big, something big, because you've been through some really cool stuff that hasn't gotten you down. Well, the biggest thing was that, that test failing, I think, at 17. And then I got this determination. And I, I was clear about what my mission is. My, my mission's been clear since that vision that night. But the deal is this, we have an executive functioning forebrain, the medial prefrontal cortex. We got an amygdala right underneath it, right. part of the limbic system. And the executive center is a systems two thinking where you think before you emotion react. And, and the amygdala is a system one thinking where you emotion react before you think. The amygdala wants to avoid pain and seek pleasure, avoid predator and seek prey. The executive center wants to embrace pain and pleasure in the pursuit of a purpose. It's interested in meaning, interested in objectivity, not subjective biases. So if we're pursuing something that's not highest on our value and it's somewhere low on the values and we're doing something because we think we should, we ought to, supposed to, got to, have to, must, which is an imperative from some outer authority and it's not really intrinsically a drive for us, the second we go after it and we don't make it, we feel like a failure because we had a fantasy that we were going to go after it. Hmm. I always say that we say only feel failure when we're addicted to success. I have no interest in success. I'm a man on a mission. I say the perception of success is like pride and it's pride before the fall. So the second you think you're successful, you're already on your way down. Success is a depurposing state. Failure is a repurposing state. It gets you back onto priority. And so I see when you're living by what's really meaningful, when you have a setback, you see it as a refinement and you see it as a feedback. And this is biologically, neurologically been proven. So when you, if you're living in your highest values, you see challenge as feedback for refinement to help you achieve. And you see play, pain and pleasure equally as valuable in the pursuit of a purpose. But when you're in, doing something that's not really important intrinsically to you, that you think you should be doing it because you got to please somebody or you got to live up to them, you're trying to be like them or whatever, and you go after a fantasy, because a fantasy is anytime you're not living authentically according to what's really intrinsically driving you. 
When you do, you have a fantasy of what success is and you're going to have failure. If you don't have the idea of success as this fantasy, you don't have this nightmare called failure. And so now the failure is actually a feedback to let you know that you're being inauthentic. And that's not a bad thing. And so I, I was blessed to pursue what it was really meaningful to me. And so I saw things on the way, not in the way. So when something happens, I just go, how is this helping me get closer to my objective? And people go, well, but, it, but, 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 because they're, they're holding on to a fantasy. And most people have to go through a series of fantasies in their life to find out who they are, I think. And that's not necessary because I've, I've, I've developed on my website a, a, a value determination process to take a look at what's really important to you intrinsically and save people sure. an enormous amount of headbangings. Because the second you do something that's intrinsic, it's like a guy who does video games. He loves video games. And you give him a video game, right? He's going to conquer that video game. And the second he does, he's not going to shy and go, oh, I want to avoid challenge. He's going to say, mom, dad, I want a more challenging game. I want to upgrade. I want to tackle a challenge. When you're doing something intrinsically driving for you, you're looking for challenge. You're not trying to avoid it. But when you're doing something low in your value, you're wanting to avoid challenge. And you want the easy path. And that's what stops people from achieving. They're pursuing a fantasy instead of a real mission. Is this where resistance comes in and the body actually feels it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because we're not being authentic. The universe is doing everything it can to get you to authentic and to be authentic. Hmm. And the moment you are, you get in the, the zone, the flow. And so you yeah. see everything on the way, not in the way. You have control of your perceptions, decisions, and actions. If you prioritize your, your actions every day and live by the highest priority and delegate the lower ones, and then you take whatever you perceive, no matter what it is, and ask, how is it helping me fulfill my highest value, my mission? There won't be anything in the way in your life. Hmm. Well, I, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, I'm going to go and rewind that because what you just said was something that I personally needed to hear in my life, in this season of my life now. It's the process, not the outcome. And I know that, yet I'm not embodying that. I'm thinking about it. Don't, don't set the outcome. Don't worry about the success. Don't worry about this. Yet there are, there are those exterior pressures that are pushing on me as a father, as a, as a, a, you know, a leader, as all these things. And psh, they crash inside. And they form this resistance. It's like, shit, I'm not on the path. I'm not going to hit this fast enough. I'm not going to get this quick enough. I'm not going to make this type of money. This, you know, in the, in the time frame where I want. And it's, it's a dangerous place to be. It's a very dangerous place to be. And well, it might if, only be if you compare it, Yeah, but if you compare yourself to somebody else, instead of compare your own daily actions to your own highest value, you're setting yourself up for that vacillating, oscillating, unstable state. So I don't, uh, is there, you know, I, I could compare myself to Jeff Bezos and go, oh, I only have, you know, so many millions, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not in the billion yet. It's possible I might get to that. I'm not quite there. So, so in the process of doing it, if I could say, go, well, you know, I'm a failure. If I compare, if you're a cat it, comparing yourself to a fish, you're going to beat yourself up because you're supposed to climb a tree, not, not uh, swim. And if you're a fish expecting sure. to climb a tree like a cat, you're going to beat yourself up. Don't compare yourself to other people. Compare your actions to your own highest values and watch what happens. Then you refine your actions daily. And what happens, I love researching and learning and I love sharing. That's all I love doing. That's it. 
So I love watching people's lives get inspired by sharing ideas that can help them move forward in their life. I can just, because I love that, that's my goalpost. Learn something that inspires people, that helps people. That's it. I love doing that. I, I, I was not the, the greatest at many things in my life, but that is one thing that I'm, I made a commitment that I was going to have the most in-depth, most broadest, most expanded knowledge in that field of anybody who's ever lived on earth. And that's why I, I just work on that day after day by the inch to cinch. And if you do that consistently, you build a brand. Yeah. You build and, a brand of that. Make people it, believe that. The way you put that into in, in like, not it's almost, it's like a vertical integration. It's linear. It's not yeah. like one piece out here and they'll go chase that piece over here. The way you just made that, that sound was, it's just one little, one little step after one little step, which, which is so clear and easy to understand. Yet at the same time, in application, it always doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't always end up that way. How does somebody, I know we need to wrap up. How does somebody, cause I, I mean, we coach a lot of men, uh, some women and the majority of them are in constant comparison to others. How does someone not do that? How does someone stop themselves from that? Oh, that's a great question. I just worked with a celebrity singer just yesterday on this topic. And uh, they were comparing themselves to another singer. And I, I said, um, let's identify what specific trait, action, or inaction do you perceive this other singer displaying or demonstrating that you admire most? And the singer wrote that down. Great. So that means that you're admiring them. Now, if you're admiring them, that means you're too humble to admit what you see in them inside you. You're minimizing you and exaggerating them. In the process of doing that, pardon me for their, their, their just after they can clean the room. <laughs> it may, they may come in here in a second. You'll see some people clean the room. But um, so I asked what specific trait action in action do you perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating that you, know, that you admire most? At that exact moment, I asked her. And, and so, good morning. And then, uh, what is that? So she wrote it out. We got really clear about what that trait was. And then I said, okay, you there? Now go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating that exact behavior, that trait. And she goes, uh, okay, got it. Where are you? When are you? Who are you demonstrating it to? And who's perceiving it? And we're documenting for episodic memory in the brain. We're documenting that. So we write down where it was, when it was, who it was to, and who perceived it. And if we get that, we document. And I said, now go to the next moment and the next moment and, and document where, when, who, who, where, when, who, who. And what we did is we made her, she was unconscious of where she was doing exactly the same behavior of the person she admired. And then she now discovered where it was. Now I've been doing this for probably 36 years with people. And I've yet to find somebody that can't find whatever they admire because we cannot admire something in somebody else that we don't have. And we, sure. but what we're too, do, we're, we're too humble to admit we have it, but we have it and we only admire them because they're reminding us of what we actually admire in ourselves. And the same thing on the despise side. We only despise somebody that's reminding us of something we feel ashamed of in ourselves, and we're trying to hide it and dissociate from it. And we're too proud to admit it. But if we go and look, we can find it too. And I've done both sides. And I, I make this individual do both sides of that individual in themselves. 
So we went in there and we had uh, 27 uh, examples of where she did that until she got a tear in her eye. And she goes, I have that behavior. 100% quantitatively and qualitative as much as I see in that individual. I said, great, you own the trait. Any trait you disown, the world around you runs you by. Because that's your button in life. And I said, and now, now what? let's go to a moment uh, where this individual displays the exact opposite trait. Because if you're assuming that they're always that way and not the opposite trait, you have a delusion, a subjective biased, false attribution biased delusion on top of this person. Let's go find out where they're the opposite. So we found this where we saw the exact opposite behavior in this individual and documented it. And she had blocked that out of her mind and, and always assumed she was always up. And then we found out that part of that has been airbrushed in images. Part of that has been refined uh, 20 takes to get that sound. There's been right. a sound remodeling. And, and all of a sudden she just, she shattered the fantasy about this person and got it grounded and leveled the playing field. And she got another tier. And I go through and I help them identify it. And so they, they no longer have them up on a pedestal and down minimize themselves. Because anytime you put somebody on a pedestal and minimize yourself, you're going to inject their values into your life. You're going to cloud the clarity of your own mission. And you're going to be sideswiped by, I, I need to, I should, I got to, I have to. I, all that distraction is noise. It's called evoke potentials in the brain. So instead of spontaneous potentials. So what we did is we went through. And each time I meet with her, we knock out a series of other those traits until that's completely gone, until there's nothing they see in those individuals that they don't have. I always say at the level of the essence of the authentic self, or sometimes called the soul, nothing's missing in us. But in our senses, things appear to be missing in us. And the reason being is because we're too proud or too humble to admit what we see in others inside us. And we have deflective awareness and we disown parts instead of reflective awareness and owning what we see. Once we do that, we don't subordinate to them or subordinate to them. Because if we resent something, we'll look down on them and puff ourselves up yeah. and be inauthentic. And if we exaggerate them, we're going we're gonna to minimize ourselves and be inauthentic. But when we're balanced, we get to be authentic. And when we're balanced, yeah. we're not narcissistic or altruistically trying to get something for nothing or give something for nothing. And we're not trying to uh, interfere with sustainable fair exchange, which maximizes our potential. When you say the... When you say the tear popped up, you said that twice. I noticed something in me when I'm very connected, when I'm very aligned, that there's a red, like when I tap into something, there's a, there's this reson, resonation, resonation, there's a resonance and it comes up in welling up or tears when I know I'm on something that, or, or a, I think about it. something. Is that, that's, is that a real that's thing? True. That's the authentic self. Okay. Is that the, that's, that's the, what, that's the. That's the, tra the trait or the characteristic of when you hit that alignment, that's usually that's a trait that- okay, That's a cool. confirmation of authenticity. That's, mm -hmm. I call it the transcendental state where you have gratitude, you feel love, you're inspired, you have an enthusiastic energy to want to take action of service, you feel present, you're not distracted, and you're certain. When those transcendental states occur, you're in an authentic state. You got tears and gratitude. It's a confirmation, chills up the spine. You know that you know that you know this is your path. That's a guide. And that's yeah. what we took her to yesterday. And the moment she did, I said, now, right now, by that trade, you intimidated by it? No. Do you own it? No. Yep. 
she had a tear in her eye. She says, I feel gratitude for myself because what I was doing is I was expecting to live in that person's values instead of being authentic to my own set of values. And that's where I excel. Hmm. So, so all the distractions of comparison are a result of putting people on pedestals or pits instead of putting them in the heart. Put people in the heart and you get to maximize your potential in life. You know, one of the, one of the exercises that we teach people in the, in the mental purpose world and our masterminds, our coaching programs is, is that same thing, which is, and I probably learned it from you anyway. Um, like when someone looks on Instagram and they're like, what the hell, why don't I have that? I'll say, why don't you want to, why don't you write to that person and just tell them how grateful you are for them showing you that it's possible or that you really appreciate that, that they did that, or you're proud of them or that you just want to congratulate them. I found that when I was a real estate agent years ago, I would just hate on somebody that got a listing from me or, or got over, you know, me in the office in top ranks. And then somebody said to me, like, what if you loved on them? And so I just started sending text messages like, hey, man, I just want to congratulate you. Like, I went up for that listing, too. Like, I'd love to sit down with you for coffee and understand how you got it. And maybe there's some things that I can work on and, and elevate in me. And that really opened up. And I can't tell you that I don't still feel resentment in some capacity. I just shift into some kind of loving contribution to them faster, a lot faster. And it really helps because then my mind share isn't taken up by bullshit that doesn't matter in my life. And it's not even based on any reality. It's based on my own insecurity. It's just, well, it's just about all life. of the distract. A, a distraction is anything that's an impulse of infatuation or a instinct of resentment, a seek or a void that's preoccupying your mind. Anything you infatuate will occupy space and time your mind and run you. Anything you resent will occupy space and time your mind and run you. The only time you run you is when you're actually in a state of grace and love and you're actually present, authentically doing what you love. That's when you are running your life. Most people are, are subordinating to other people or supporting them instead of being themselves. Impulsive infatuation or a impulsive infatuation or a instinct from, from what we resent. Got Those are the two primary distractions. We have two forms of distress in life. The perception of loss of that which we seek, which is the impulse towards prey, and the perception of gain of what we're trying to avoid, which is predator. Those are the two biological amygdala responses that are basically causing distress. If you're not exaggerating a person or minimizing them and not looking up with infatuation, looking down with resentment, and you're looking across and you're loving them, you don't have those fears. You just have actions. And spontaneous potentials in the brain occur in that state. And we, uh, we spontaneously act. We don't need motivation. The other two need motivation, reward and punishment. We don't need that. I don't need reward and punishment to do what I do. I spontaneously love researching and teaching. So I do that every day. I don't have to be motivated to do it. I don't need to be reminded to do it. I love doing it. Just like the video guy does his video games. Right, right. Well, look, I, I, uh, I want to be respectful of your time. It, this, has been, uh, this has been truly extraordinary and enlightening. I'm going to really appreciate you being here. Well, thank you for having me because you're helping me reach people that I wouldn't reach. So thank you. Sure. You're helping oh, me fulfill my anytime. dream that I had when I was 17. <laughs> Anything I can do, I'm in. And, and, and this, is, this, is, uh, this is fulfilling my dream, too, of of having some kind of positive, powerful, and purposeful impact in the men of the world. And we did today.
We definitely did. We are going to get so much feedback from this episode. I'm, I'm so damn excited. So I just thank you. Doesn't explain it enough. I mean, you, you really, you shared your heart on this, on this episode and, and people are going to feel that. And, and, and for that, I'm eternally grateful. Well, thank you for the opportunity to do it. I was looking forward to the show and, and you did a great job and I'm inspired to do it. And so thank you. I hope whoever's listening out there, give yourself permission to shine. Uh, you know, the magnitude of the vision you have is going to determine the outcome in your life. Um, so give yourself permission to have an astronomical vision so you can have a global effect. Yeah, well said. Dr. John Martini. Well, this is, uh, this is cool. This is just the universal lining. This is awesome. So thank you again for being here. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to reach out to you again. I think, I think it'd be awesome. Maybe in a couple months, six months, something like that. Great. to do Another one of these where we'll we get a little deeper on some topics. That's, that'd be awesome. Perfect. Fantastic. I look forward to it. I'd be honored. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, audience. I know you enjoyed that. I know that for a fact. So get us your feedback, comment on the YouTube channel. Come on the MOP community, the mental purpose community. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Reach out to Dr. John Demartini. You, you literally can't not find him online. What's the website, by the way? Just Dr. Demartini, D-R-D-Martini, D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com. DrDmartini.com. They can go on and do the value determination process to find out what really intrinsically drives them on there for free and private. Please take advantage of that. It's a, it's a gift to everybody. We definitely will. Thank you again for being here. Audience, thank you for listening. And uh, we'll catch you on the next one.